Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Hi folks, I think we'll um, make a start. Welcome to um, this seminar on basic income. I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research here at the university. Um, and we at the Institute have a, a research project running at the moment, which my colleague Dr. Luke Martinelli is leading on, um, investigating various dimensions, aspects of uh, basic income proposals, how they relate to broader questions of welfare reform, digital economy, uh, the affordability of different kinds of basic income proposals. But today, um, we're very pleased to be able to welcome Dr. Malcolm Torrey. Malcolm, um, I, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, Malcolm has sort of laboured in this vineyard for some time, and uh, basic income has not always been as sort of fashionable as it is today. I mean, for many years, lots of people worked on it in, in relatively marginal to lots of welfare state debates. Um, but in recent years, there's been a, an upsurge of interest, not just in the UK, but in um, many other countries around the world. There are, people will know, uh, proposed pilot projects on basic income proposals in Finland, in the Netherlands, uh, talk now of projects in Kenya, India, and so on. So um, quite an upswing in interest. And, and so, um, you know, a lot of interest in this debate, both in academia and in civil society, and increasingly amongst political parties. Um, so it's very good to have you here, Malcolm. Malcolm uh, is a visiting senior fellow at uh, the LSE, but also the director of the Citizens Income Trust, uh, such the lead body in the UK um, for uh, advocacy and research into citizens' income, use of universal basic income, uh, and has recently published The Feasibility of Citizens' Income, a, a, another book looking at the questions of feasibility. So Malcolm, very good to have you here. Um, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, it's a bit loud, isn't it? Perhaps I'd better just hold it, like you were. Is that loud enough if I just hold it? Um, so thank you very much for the invitation to do this. Um, yes, it's about 30 years ago um, that some of us started to research the desirability and feasibility of a citizen's or basic income. And we've been somewhat surprised at the interest shown during the past couple of years because we all thought we'd finish our working lives and possibly our lives if the thing still on the far fringes of, the, of political and research debate. So I'm going to speak a little bit about citizens' <coughs> income, basic income, and then we'll have questions and discussion. Um, I've no idea what your level of knowledge of it all is, so I always start presentations like this briefly with an explanation of exactly what it is, so that we all know exactly what we're talking about. Um, a citizen's income is an unconditional, automatic, and non-withdrawable payment for each individual with the right to citizenship. It has a variety of names. It's sometimes a basic income, universal basic income, universal grant, universal benefit. It's now being called a citizen's basic income occasionally. Um, we wait and see where the terminology goes. doesn't matter what you call it, so long as it is that. It's unconditional automatic, non-withdrawable, which means that however much you earn, whatever your additional earnings, the citizen's income is not withdrawn from you. Um, so that's what it is. Um, there are an awful lot of arguments for a citizen's income. There are at least 101. When I wrote this book, I had to cross lots of them off the list that I initially put together. Um, and here's just one or two of them. Our means-tested benefit system 
uh, imposes quite high marginal deduction rates on people uh, in employment roles, also receiving research benefits or people teaching on research benefits, which means that if you earn um, extra earnings, then uh, so much of that is withdrawn through income tax, national insurance contribution as a means of social benefits being withdrawn that the total withdrawal rate can get quite high. And research has shown hundreds of thousands of people on marginal deduction rates of 85% and many on 96%. That is, out of every extra pound you earn, you get 4p. That's what our present system does. Because the citizen's income is never withdrawn, if that became part of our benefit system, it would not contribute to marginal deduction rates. So that's what, uh, one of the major advantages of a citizen's income, which means net income could rise faster for an awful lot of households. Citizen's income would provide a secure income floor. Um, I got into this debate because in the two years at the end of the 1970s, I was uh, administering means sensitive benefits Brixton Supplementary Benefit Office, as it was then called. Our favourite benefit was child benefit. And it was the claimant's favourite benefit because it just kept on coming. So long as you had a child who was either under 16 or still in full-time education, uh, it just kept on coming. It was a foundation. It would never be taken away from you, whereas anything else could disappear. Citizens' income would provide such an income floor for everyone. One of the worst bits of the job we used to do when I was means tested, uh, administering means-tested benefits was, was trying to understand the intimate details of claimants' relationships because two people in a couple got less between them than two individuals got in total as they were living separately. So we had to find out who was living with who, what, their, what the intimate details of their relationships were. None of that would happen with a citizen's income. It happens still with job seekers' allowance. It happens with workers' tax credit have to say whether you're living in a couple or not. And people would have far greater choice over the employment patterns that they were able to take on as a household because each individual, for each individual, their citizen's income would just keep on coming. Whereas at the moment, if you are on working tax credits, your tax credit claim relates to the household as a whole, which constrains your employment choices it would be administratively simple. There couldn't be anything simpler than simply paying everybody the same amount of money every week with no conditions attached. And it's not intrusive. It provides equal treatment for every individual of the same age. Age is the only conditionality limited to the citizen's income. Uh, people who are older would be likely to get more. Younger adults might or might not get less than working age adults. Children obviously would get less. Um, it's automatic, flawless computerization would be possible. Any of you who've been anywhere near the computerization of um, uh, uh, universal credit and trying to understand what's going on will know how important it is that any change we make in future to the benefit system can be flawlessly computerized. And it's entirely transparent. Um, there's uh, very few people who've been discovered actually understand anything at all about the benefit system, even if they are part of it somehow. Um, everybody would understand the citizen's income, just as everyone understands what child benefit's about. There's very little that holds our society together. The NHS does, we all experience it, public education for our children, child benefit, although that's become slightly more complex. If anybody wants to ask me later on exactly what's happened to child benefit, I will explain. Um, 
because it's not what some people think it is. Social cohesion would be enormously enhanced by a different income because everybody would be treated exactly the same in relation to it. Flex security. Um, Ursula Hughes, uh, the academic uh, who researches future labour markets, um, uh, has pointed out just how the, the, the fundamental problem with a more flexible labour market isn't that the labour market's more flexible, it's that people's incomes become insecure. And if we could marry income security with a flexible labour market, then we would protect people's incomes as the employment market changes around us, which it will, and at the same time provide industry and commerce with the kind of flexible labour market which it's going to need in a very competitive world. But the important thing is to try and keep those things together. And the citizens' income would help to do that. Um, the labour market could become more flexible without damaging workers' economic security the way it does now. So paying for it. There's no point in discussing something that we can't pay for. And so in the short term, we're going to have to pay for a citizen's income uh, from within the current benefits and tax system. In the current political climate, there is no point in discussing anything else. Um, now, there are plans, or at least proposals, for quite high citizen's incomes that people want to generate additional revenue to pay for. That may one day become possible. Um, it would be nice if it did. However, in the current circumstances, there really isn't much point in discussing anything that's going to cost extra money. So, most um, realistic proposals assume that people's income tax burden allowances will be reduced or abolished because those are worth money to you. Uh, if you have a personal tax allowance of, say, £10,000, which is where it's about now, um, and the basic tax rate is 20%, then your personal tax allowance is worth £2,000 a year to you. If we took that away from you and gave you and basic income each week that was exactly the same amount per annum, you would not be worse off, government would not be worse off, and you would be receiving an untraditional income. And um, tax rates would need to be raised slightly, though there is, no, there is no possibility of raising them very much higher than they are now. There's not much political possibility of that. We would need to make changes to national insurance contributions, the thresholds and their levels. It'd be nice if in the longer term other funding mechanisms were possible. But today, during this seminar, what we shall be discussing is revenue neutral citizens' income schemes. We'll do that later on. That is, you can pay for them within the current system. If during questions and discussion you want to discuss other kinds, then that's fine, please do. Um, but the, what this presentation will be mainly about is citizens' income schemes that you can pay for by reducing personal tax allowances and benefits and so on. There are many arguments against a basic or citizens' income, and it's only fair that we should discuss them here. Um, I'm often told, and quite rightly so, that a citizens' income would not solve an awful lot of problems, such as the housing crisis. Is that relevant? No. Um, our current benefit system gets nowhere near uh, solving the housing crisis. The fact that a, a, a way of rearranging our benefits and tax system doesn't solve every problem there is, is not relevant, even though some people think it is. If a citizen's income were to replace um, 
means-tested benefits, then we would not know who would be entitled to other benefits currently given to people on means-tested benefits. That is absolutely true. And it is a, an important objection to uh, a citizen's income, which would remove uh, a lot of households from means-tested benefits, because means-tested benefits are a passport to other benefits at the moment. The only answer to that is that if a citizen's income is an efficient way of managing our income maintenance system, just as child benefit is efficient, and just as the National Health Service is efficient, um, then to make other benefits unconditional and pay for them out of income tax is an efficient way of doing it. And it interested me that um, there, there is now a trend towards school meals becoming more universal. Um, they are now universal for the youngest age group, and there are local authorities, particularly in London, experimenting with free school meals for higher age groups in their primary schools. Um, it's very efficient to do, and uh, it, it, it helps to create cohe social cohesion within the schools, and one of the reasons that so many local authorities are now looking into that proposal. So yes, there is a problem, and there will be a transitional problem if we remove households from means-tested benefits and we leave in place all the benefits that now need means-tested benefits for you to gain access to. It is a, a problem and it is soluble. It is sometimes said to me that a citizen's income would give scarce public money to people who do not need it. Um, absolutely true. But if that's the efficient thing to do, then we should do that, and you can take it back from you through the income tax system. If that is the efficient thing to do, then we should do it. I can, but then it's too loud. Is the problem in it? I think that's now too loud, isn't it? Is it all right? Okay. It was just making a funny, <laughs> sort of rather dongy noise. Um, we, at the moment, we, we provide National Health Service services to people with any amount of assets and any amount of income. That is an entirely efficient thing to do. Um, similarly, with the winter fuel allowance, it is highly efficient simply to give it to every pensioner and to pay for it through an income tax system which is progressive because if you're wealthy, you are paying more in income tax than you are receiving in your winter fuel allowance. It is no argument to say, amongst the, for the wealthy to say, I don't need it, would you please means test it? Because that is simply inefficient. Uh, there's plenty of people. A valid argument is that a citizen's income would not function as an automatic stabiliser during a recession in the same way that means tested benefits do. Um, in a recession, as people lose their jobs, means-tested benefits in total go up, putting uh, money into the economy, which acts as a stabiliser during a recession. It's absolutely true. Of course, if everybody was given a citizen's income, then income tax would adjust, and exactly the same stabiliser effect would occur but it would happen in a different way. And if that's something we want to discuss, 
afterwards and feed these birds because it is actually not true if you think about it that there will be no stabilising effect of the system as a whole. More arguments against. A citizen's income is designed for people who can earn incomes would not be sufficient for people with disabilities who cannot do so. Absolutely true. Um, it is simply not possible for a citizen's income to replace everything else. And I, for one, certainly would never suggest that that is a possibility. Um, at the moment, we have a means tested benefit system, a national insurance system, and we have a variety of additional benefits for people with particular needs. Much of that would have to survive. What a citizen's income would do, and I've debated this with the National Association of Welfare Rights Advisors, who are particularly interested in this question, um, what a citizen's income would do would be to provide people with disabilities with the same economic foundation as everybody else. Um, and would therefore enable many people with disabilities uh, to create the kind of flexible employment structures that they need and want, which the current benefit system makes very difficult for them. And I've been aware of this from many people with disabilities that I've known. Um, the current benefit system, its inflexibility means it is so hard for them to adjust as their disability changes the amount of employment they take on. Whereas a citizen's income, because it would never change, would continue to provide an economic foundation for each of them. I'm told that a citizen's income would cause people to stop seeking paid work. Um, precisely the opposite is likely to be true, and we know from empirical evidence that precisely the opposite does appear to be true. Because the marginal deduction <coughs> rates would drop for every family if they had a citizen's income, uh, they would actually be more likely to seek additional earnings. No longer would households experience 85% tax rate, 96% tax rate. And so people would be more likely to seek new skills, to seek new employment, to seek employment if they didn't have it. It would be the kind of incentivizing mechanism that we don't have at the moment for so many households. One of the major problems for people on means-tested benefits, and that includes tax credits, and, um, for many years, until two years ago, I was a vicar in South London and knew, knew countless families stuck in these traps, is that there is a huge incentive not to seek additional employment or even to want your wages to rise because every change in your income meant a recalculation of your means-tested benefits creating budgetary chaos for your household. Um, and uh, citizens' income, because it would never change, would be a foundation that would never be affected by changes in earnings. And so it gives you much greater freedom to seek new patterns of employment, new employment, and so on. So, and natural experiments, and if you want the details there in, in the most recent book, which I'll tell you about later on, um, uh, show that this is in fact the case that uh, we can show empirical evidence that if you, if you reduce people's marginal deduction rates, they are likely to take on additional employment. I'm told a citizen's income would be unaffordable. Uh, the answer is there are certain kinds of citizen's income that would indeed be unaffordable. But the citizen's income in itself is not unaffordable. Um, it depends on the scheme. There's a difference between a citizen's income as a fundamental idea and a citizen income scheme 
which includes both the citizen's income and the changes you make to the tax and benefit system in order to fund it. And there are citizen's income schemes that are entirely affordable, and I'll be discussing one of those in detail in a few minutes. I'm told that benefit systems are so complicated that it is impossible to change them. Um, the answer to that is, if you try and change one very complicated benefit system into another very complicated benefit system, then it's not going to work. And we've seen that with the government's experience with universal credit. Uh, it's a highly complex system being transitioned into another very complex system to which even more complexities have been added. And it is no surprise that it hasn't been easy to do. A citizen's income would be no more difficult to implement than a child, than child benefit, which is the simplest thing to computerise, to administer. Um, when I was working for the, for, for the Department of Health and Social Security, we loved it. It was absolutely simple. We never had any problems with it, and neither did its claimants. I'm told that people in employment would not be willing to fund a benefit that would pay to surfers. Um, now, it may be true that some people will simply spend their lives surfing. And uh, there are libertarians who say, that's great. Um, we should pay people to go surfing. I don't see it quite like that. The way I see it is that people who are surfing may well be doing that within the current tax and benefit system. Um, and if they were paid a citizen's income, they might well look for a teaching job teaching people to surf, um, as well as doing their surfing, because they would get more out of their additional income than they would do under the current circumstances. In the current benefit system, somebody who takes on a small amount of casual work has an incentive not to tell anybody, because their benefits they're receiving will be reduced, and often may stop. And so an awful lot of this country's economy is completely under the radar. And um, having worked for the Department of Health and Social Security and being a priest in South London for many years, I probably have a better idea than most as to exactly how much of our economy is under the radar. It's a great deal of it. And to implement a citizen's income would mean that at least one of the incentives to hide your income would be gone because your citizen's income would never change however much additional income you managed to put together through self-employment, casual labour and so on. People may still want to hide their income for tax purposes, that's another matter, but that's the case now. And so we're likely to see surfers actually looking for a bit of employment in order to fund their surfing. So I have no, no worries particularly about the surfers. It is told, I'm told that there are other ways to lift people out of poverty. Yes, of course there are. Um, what we would say is that a citizen's income is worth a look, and a serious look, as a, as a contribution to the reduction in poverty. And when we look at in detail in a few minutes at a particular fairly small citizen's income scheme, you'll see exactly what I mean. The state of the debate. I've been asked if I would say a little about the state of the debate. The debate goes all the way back to Thomas Paine in the 18th century, who was the first that we know of to suggest anything like a citizen's income. Um, it's been reinvented about once a generation, and Walter van Trier, a Belgian academic, wrote his PhD thesis on this some years ago. Um, 
Uh, Jürgen knows, knows Walter. Um, and every now and then, the idea has popped up into public consciousness. Um, and then it's completely disappeared again. And then someone else has thought they invented it. And no, they didn't, because it had been there before. And one of the reasons that in 1984, some set up what was then the Basic Income Research Group was to try to carry on through the inevitable trough of interest a level of research and facilitation of debate so that next time there was an increase in interest in the idea of giving everyone some money, there will be uh, some information out there on which the new debate could be based. And we think we've achieved that. Um, the, last, uh, the last reinvention um, was, was a mother and son partnership, really. It was Juliet Rees-Williams before the Second World War um, uh, was on beverages committee and suggested something like citizens' income. Uh, the committee, neither com the committee nor beverage, were interested. Um, and uh, there are reasons why. And if you ask me questions, I'll explain. Um, uh, her son uh, Brandon, then made, uh, who was an MP, a uh, Conservative MP, uh, then took a scheme to a parliamentary select committee. We discussed it in 1982 and uh, decided that the government should look into the possibility of paying citizens' income. A general election followed, nothing happened. And since then, there have been uh, think tank projects and reports, more recently, Compass, the Royal Society of Arts, and the Adam Smith Institute, so across the political spectrum. Over the last two years, there has been increasing positive media interest in citizens' income. We can date that positive interest to an article which Larry Elliott wrote in The Guardian in August 2014. Um, and that set the ball rolling for serious interest being paid by the serious press. There is political party interest, uh, the Greens, SNP, Liberal Democrats are looking at it again, bits of the Labour Party, trade unions are beginning to sign up to the idea and the Trade Union Congress has discussed it Internationally, uh, in 1986, we helped to set up the N, which was the Basic Income European Network. The debate then went global, so it became the rather stupidly named Basic Income Earth Network, um, because everyone wanted to keep the PIAN acronym. Um, so that's where we are. Um, there have been, I'll get to your pilot projects in a minute. What you may have heard about is the Swiss referendum. Um, it was a really interesting exercise in Switzerland where there's a kind of, there's a, a regular direct democracy um, where, where if you get enough signatures on a petition, then the government is expected to run an entire referendum on the proposal. And so um, uh, sig signatures were collected. The government ran a referendum on whether people wanted citizens' income in Switzerland. Slightly unfortunately, the referendum question itself uh, simply asked the government to decide the level and the means of paying for it. Whereas the, uh, the organisers had made a proposal for a particular level of citizens' income, which, to be honest, was rather high. And that's what got into the press in Switzerland. It's what became part of the debate, even though it wasn't on the referendum paper. So it was all a rather complex issue, and the government uh, advised population to vote against it. Um, this was unfortunate. 
Um, the kind of people did do what the government suggested and voted against it. Um, but it really it, it created a ferment of debate in Switzerland. And I'm sure it's not the last we'll have heard of it in Switzerland. It's certainly not the last of it we'll have heard across Europe and across the world. Pilot projects. Pilot projects are very difficult to organise. Um, and I shall look at that again in a minute if we have, uh, later on if we have time. In developing countries, they're much easier to organise. <coughs> and there have been two really interesting ones. Um, there have been two uh, quite big ones, one in Namibia and one in India. And Professor Guy Standing at SOAS has been at the heart of these. And they've, uh, the, the, the um, Namibian one was funded by a local consortium of churches, trade unions, mainly, but other people joined in. And the Indian one has, has much broader um, uh, interest from UNICEF. And um, the Namibian one was simply a let's see what happens when we pay two large communities a citizen's income. The Indian one was a random control trial. So they're very different exercises. They were different. <coughs> uh, there was a, a, the results of the Namibian one were really interesting. And some of them were really very unexpected. Here's just some of them. Um, very low administrative costs. Uh, the, 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 the citizen's income being given to the, the population of two villages generated a lot of unexpected effects, like uh, their own, um, they generated their own elections and um, elected assembly. Um, they opened a post office uh, and uh, new shops were opened. Uh, all of the indicators of poverty started to fall. This was just for two years they were paid a citizen's income. So those are some of the figures on the slide. Children's weight for age improved. And just over two years, it came to nearly match the world average. The educational results improved. Health results improved. Economic activity rose, <coughs> suggesting people know they are not intrinsically lazy. And giving a citizen's income to these two communities generated new economic activity because for the first time they had an income foundation on which to build. Own account work saw the largest increase. Average income rose in every quintile. Proportionately more for the lower quintiles. And average income rose a staggering 200% in the lowest quintile, excluding their 12 US dollars worth of citizens' income. Nobody expected kind of a result. Crime fell. Low wage employment was in many cases replaced by self-employment and prostitution fell. Much larger Indian pilot projects exhibited very similar results to those and particularly additional results in relation to people with disabilities. There have been negative income tax experiments which you may have heard about in United States and Canada. A negative income tax is not the same as a citizen's income. It is not simply handing you an income every week of exactly the same value for every individual. It is a way of adjusting the tax system so that if your earned income falls below a threshold, then your employer pays out money to you and claims it back from the government and if you are above the tax threshold, you pay tax. So it's not quite the same as citizen's income, certainly not the same administratively, 
So it can have the same economic effect, which is what's been useful <coughs> about those experiments in the United States and Canada. And whether you can um, transfer the employment market uh, consequences of negative income tax to a citizen's income is an open question. It's a complicated issue because the administration is very different and the way that it works for households is very different. But it is of interest, uh, let me just put it like that, it is of interest um, that there was some labour market change and uh, uh, a Canadian academic, Edmund Forger, has recently been over the results again and published some very useful summaries of exactly what's happened in the experiment. Um, individuals who lost their job took longer over finding a new one suggesting that they were looking for the right jobs and not just any job, because they had a level of income on which they could rely. Mothers of young children reduced their employment hours, but did not generally leave the employment market. And young adults were more likely to go to college to gain qualifications. Those are arguably good things. And so what we might have seen in those experiments is the kind of employment market that people actually want to see, rather than the one that people are now largely forced into. Um, what we don't yet know is whether the finish, this is all I'm going to say about this, because it's a moving target all the time. We don't yet know whether the Finnish and Utrecht pilot projects will be citizens' income pilot projects. Um, Jürgen is one of the experts. He knows a great deal about what the Finnish experiment isn't. And um, we, can <laughs> we can discuss this afterwards if you'd like to do so. Um, it's the Finnish and Utrecht experiments that are in the news, which is slightly problematic because we don't yet know whether they're going to be genuine citizens' income pilot projects. And we can come back to that if you wish to. So, citizens' income, um, I've now told you, um, I rather like these pictures, I'm sorry. Uh, what's not to like? But is it feasible? Um, now, Jürgen and his colleagues have, over the years, done some very useful work and published articles and chapters in books on the feasibility of citizens' income. And um, after I'd written a couple of books on the subject of citizens' income for the policy press, Paul Gray McMillan <coughs> asked me for a book about the feasibility of citizens' income. Um, much of it is based <coughs> on the work that Jürgen and his colleagues have done. There are basically seven feasibilities, and not just one, there are seven. There are two kinds of financial feasibility. The first is, would it be possible to finance a citizen's income without spending any extra um, public money? So that's the first question, and it really is a vitally important one. The second one is equally important. If at the point of implementation of your citizen's income, households are going to lose money, particularly low-income households, then that citizen's income scheme is not feasible. So there are two kinds of financial feasibility that a citizen's income scheme will have to get through. Um, there are tests here that, they would, that it would need to pass. If it doesn't pass those two tests, then we need to scrap it because it's not going to be feasible. A citizen's income scheme and citizen's income in general has to pass a psychological feasibility test, which is in two parts. First of all, is it readily understood? Secondly, is it understood to be beneficial? Those are two separate psychological questions. Um, given the amount that most people in this country do not understand 
about benefit systems. This is a really difficult feasibility test to get through. Um, and when I speak to groups, and you might say a, a, um, a political party ward meeting or something of that nature, then I will explain what a citizen's income is, um, how it might be feasible, um, the advantages, some of which I've been through with you. Um, and around the room, you can see the penny starting to drop that actually, yes, we can give everyone some money and it doesn't matter that the rich are getting it because they're paying more in tax anyway and so on. Sometimes you see the penny start to drop. This is not an impossible thing to do, even though it's not been part of people's mindsets before. But by the end of the evening, or whatever it is, the, a group of people in this, in this meeting, the penny will not have dropped because it's the poor who need money and not the rich. And why give money to the rich if they don't need it? We have been manifesting benefits in this country for 400 years. That's an awful lot of history to get through. And so the psychological feasibility test is a really difficult one for citizens' income to get through. A behavioural test is a bit different. It's a test you have to pass after implementation <coughs> and not before. A citizen's income scheme will pass the behavioural test if it generates the promised consequences for individuals and households. If it doesn't improve people's incentives for employment, if it doesn't give them greater choice in the employment market, if it doesn't do the things which I've said it will do, then it will not pass the behavioural test. Oh, it's a very difficult test because you can only impose it after implementation. But it's just as important because any citizen's income scheme that we implemented, if it did not pass the behavioural test, it would not last. An administrative feasibility test is would it be possible to administer a citizen's income? And there's a second rather important part. Would it be possible to manage the transition? Universal credit has failed on both counts. A citizen's income, um, it can easily pass the first. It is very easy to administer a citizen's income. If we were to provide everyone in the country with a citizen's income, then for each individual, it would turn on at birth and it would turn off at death. A computer would adjust it for age. There will be no administration required between those two points. Administration could not be simpler. Managing the transition from our current complex benefit system towards a system that contains a citizen's income is a rather more difficult test to pass. Political feasibility. This is simply about whether the idea coheres with existing political ideology. And I did some research at the London School of Economics on this issue, and you'll find some of the results of that um, in my book, Money for Everyone, and in the most recent book, Feasibility uh, of a Citizen's Income, and there's stuff on the Citizens Income Trust website, more details of that project. The answer is yes, um, it can. Policy process feasibility. Um, would, it be able to, would the idea be able to get from idea to implementation through the complex policy process in this country? Um, the policy process is an incredibly complex animal, containing a wide variety of institutions, individuals, and structures. 
it is not an easy question to answer. I'm going to talk to you about two illustrative citizens' income schemes on which we've done some work. We've used uh, the Euromod micro-simulations program to uh, extract results, um, to tell you what the consequences, the financial consequences, would be. And there's some new micro-simulation work going on in the Institute's policy research here, um, and we look forward to those results too. Two schemes I'm going to talk about here are Scheme A, which abolishes means-tested benefits um, and pays citizens' incomes of those levels to the different age groups. Scheme B um, uh, pays a means, uh, citizens' incomes, uh, leaves in place child benefit and basic state pension, and leaves means-tested benefits <coughs> in place. So for, many for every household, um, of course, if you're receiving a citizen's income and you're no longer, you no longer have a personal tax allowance, your earnings will change and your means-tested benefits will be recalculated on the base of your changed earnings and the fact that you are now receiving citizen's income. So a household citizen's income would go into the calculation, the, your changed earnings would go into the calculation, and your means-tested benefits will change, usually downwards by quite a lot. So, here's some of the results. I've put again the figures for the different citizens' incomes at the top of the table. The <coughs> income tax rate that would be required, this is, these are additions to the existing income tax rates in the next line, of 5% and 3% for revenue neutrality. That is, you could implement these schemes by raising income tax rates by those amounts. There is a serious question as to whether an increase of 5% is realistic. I suspect not. And so whereas 3% probably is, certainly more realistic than 5%. So then you find the next three lines are what the uh, income tax rates would be. The next line is very important. It shows you how many households would lose money at the point of implementation. The important bit is the households in the lowest disposable income decile. That's the 10% of households with the smallest income. And as you can see, with Scheme A, a very large number uh, experience losses of over 10%. The reason for that is that their citizens' incomes have replaced their personal tax allowances but cannot possibly replace all of their working tax credits. So that is an infeasible scheme. It doesn't pass a second financial feasibility test. Whereas Scheme B, has very low numbers of losses, and those are easily copable with. Um, they are, um, there are a few, and those are generally to do, if you begin to look at the very detailed information you get out of, out of the micro-simulation program, um, they are due to unusual circumstances, and of course, you need to cope with those, but they are not a major problem. The next line shows you how many amongst all households would experience losses. And similarly, with the Scheme B, you have a feasible level of losses. Most of those under Scheme B will be amongst the wealthiest households. The net cost of the scheme is important. Those are both within reasonable limits, suggesting that the schemes, both schemes are affordable, wouldn't need additional public funds. In fact, Scheme B is used by the government with a savings which is nice for them. 
Here's the, what I regard as quite significant um, result from simply scheme B this time. What it would achieve. It leaves mean specific benefits in place, remember? But as you will see, people on out-of-work benefits, the number of claims will drop. Number of claims for people in, on working tax credits and child tax credits will drop. And what's really interesting, and we're still looking at this issue, is there will be almost no change in the other benefit claims. It's an interesting quirk of the way in which our current benefit system works, that the uh, top two lines of benefits <coughs> change quite considerably, and the number of claims related to pension credit, housing benefit, council tax benefits do not. The next table down tells you the reduction in total cost of claims and the reduction in average value of claim relating to those same means-tested <coughs> benefits. And as you can see, there are substantial cuts in both the, both the cost in total means-tested benefits and particularly out-of-work benefits and like JSA and ESA and so on, um, and a reduction in the average value of claim, quite a large one. What that means is a lot of individuals and households currently on means-tested benefits will be much closer to getting off them, and a small amount of additional earnings will get them off them. My experience, both as a vicar in South London and as, as an administrator of means-tested benefits, is that what's at the top of most people's minds if they're on means-tested benefits is they want to get off them. And a citizen's income that left the system in place, as you can see, even quite a small citizen's income would enable an awful lot of people to get off them. Again, not much change in the housing benefit, council tax benefit. The Gini coefficient goes down with that fairly small citizen's income. That means uh, inequality falls. There are far fewer children in poverty. It may seem odd that giving everyone some money in this way reduces child poverty, but it does. Similarly with working age adults in poverty and the economically active working age adults in poverty. It increases elderly poverty, and that's something we're still looking into, wondering why. There are a variety of possible ways of implementing a citizen's income. Um, and here you, you have them. You could abolish means-tested benefits on the implementation of a uh, citizen's income, um, but that would give you too many losses. So on the whole, we leave that one off the agenda. So it'll need to stay in place. Um, and if additional money became available, then that would be nice too. One possible way of doing it is to start with 16-year-olds, letting them keep it, and then as they move through the age range, every new 16-year-old age group would receive their citizen's income, providing a smooth transition into the new system. This and one or two other implementation methods are going to be studied next month at a consultation being held by the Institute of Chartered Accountants, who've shown a strong interest in this issue. The ICA looks into the future to try and work out what might be coming over the horizon at Chartered Accountants one day. They regard citizens' income as a distinct possibility that they need to start thinking about now. That's interesting. I'm going to skip those because we're running out of time. I want to leave you plenty of time. Um, further reading. Um, if you're interested in the further reading, um, that's the 
that's a good introduction to the subject still. It's affordable. It's Policy Press 2013, money for everyone. I was asked for a shorter one, and that one's called 101 Reasons for Citizens' Income. I think it's still £10. That's a new one which you won't be buying. I'm sorry to say that it's £82. In fact, it might be more than that now because it was published in the States at $120. So you can probably work out it may now be worth rather more than £82 for you. Um, so I'm really sorry about that. Uh, ask your library to get it, borrow it from them, because what it's got in it is all the detailed stuff about those feasibility tests. Uh, that's the newest one. It's called Citizens' Basic Income, Christian Social Policy. I was asked to produce something which would be of use to the churches um, as they engage with this debate. That's the most recent microstimulation research, if you want to look that up. Institute for Social and Economic Research. Um, it's a Euromod working paper called An Evaluation of a Strictly Revenue-Neutral Citizens' Income Scheme. And it's from that working paper that the results tables that you've just seen have been taken. Um, I hope you aren't. I, I decided not to wear it. Um, but I, I was very pleased to receive a prize. Um, one or two of you know I got this prize. I got the prize for the most downloaded Euromod working paper, um, which was wonderful. Yeah, I got a T-shirt, but this T-shirt really was the prize. Um, <laughs> what that means is that the academic world and others are now regarding this as a serious research issue. Um, and I was actually really very surprised that a working paper on citizens' income was the most downloaded working paper from the entire Euromod set. Um, which is a very diverse set. Uh, I have a few hard copies of our introductory booklet, if anybody would like one. You can also download it from the Citizens Income Trust website if you want um, to do that. And thank you to Carl Thompson for the illustrations in this presentation, which I'm always pleased to say. Um, so there you are. I hope I haven't taken too long. Um, Yes, shall I, uh, shall I come up and sort of chair the Q&A? Um, thanks very much for that, Mark. It was really informative, interesting stuff. Um, so I think it can be just fairly informal with the remaining Q&A session, but perhaps I can just uh, invite questions from the floor, and um, James is going to go around with the mics just so we can catch them as well. Um, whether we do sort of individual questions or clusters, we can sort of play, play Depends by ear. Depends how hard they are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, if it degenerates into sort of more of an informal seminar type discussion, that's also fine. So, um, do we have any questions? Yeah, well, it, it, things will change every minute, so you're going to better say where it all is yeah. now. It's just it won't pick it up on for the uh, ah, recording. Right, okay. Um, so my name is Jürgen Hitzler. I work for, I'm basically involved in state policy. So that's why I'm So yeah, the situation is basically, the situation usually is changing. And actually, I've just been in touch with the Dutch administration as well. So both in the Netherlands, which, by the way, is not just Utrecht. It's actually four municipalities, Utrecht, Wageningen, they together are uh, coordinating with the government to launch municipal expansions, right? So it's fairly interesting, uh, Finland, top-down, Netherlands, bottom-up kind of thing. 
Uh, basically, it was pretty much messed up uh, in both subsequent moments. Uh, so, uh, government in both countries are making it very hard how much energy they have to put to the existing networks and how to maintain it. So, in a nutshell, it looks like what we'll be able to do is focus on special assistance recipients, but uh, get away from a lot of the penalizing things and, you know, have better marginal Primarily testing the labor market participants because this is what the government is interested in. But in Finland for sure, we're putting a lot of effort to make sure that we're also testing individual well-being measures and community level housing and all of that as well. There's a lot more going on with the experiment, but Belkom is right in saying that we're not going to be strictly different than the Swiss country. Although we hope that we still have input in both of those mm. countries. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, the elderly. Yes, it, it appears to be a result of. But the, you, you mean the the, um, the rise in elderly poverty? Um, there are there are various ways of, of um, providing elderly people with an income. Now, uh, in this country, uh, elderly people often continue to earn. They have may have occupational pensions. They have a private pension. Uh, they will have a state pension. Um, though the state pension age is rising, as you know. And at the moment, um, for those without sufficient earnings, occupational pension, and private pension, uh, there is a means-tested pension credit and a savings credit to try and patch up the problem. <laughs> um, to try and patch up the problem that, that people are no longer saving because they knew they'd get their pension credit, which will go down if they have savings. Now, um, so it was a really complicated system. The previous minister for pension, Stephen Webb did a really useful piece of work, and I'm, some of you may be aware of this. Um, the, the single tier state pension um, was his creation, and it's being slowly rolled out over the next decade. And what it will do is it effectively increases the level of the basic state pension to what is currently the level at which, to which means-tested pension, means-tested pension credit takes you. So um, it should take uh, everybody who receives a single-tier state pension off means-tested benefits. won't take them off housing benefits if they're on that, and as you could see from the, my tables, it's very difficult to do anything very much about housing benefits. Um, and that's, that's more to do with the housing market than anything else. Um, but uh, he, uh, he, he did a very useful piece of work because it's going to take an awful lot of pensioners off means-tested benefits and effectively give them something like a citizen's pension. Um, now that's good news. Now, um, Stephen Webb uh, once worked for the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Um, he's one of the few people who understands the benefit system. Unfortunately, he lost his seat at the last election because he's a Liberal Democrat. It was really sad because Parliament lost its, its expert in the benefit system. Um, back in 1990, as I sometimes reminded him, he wrote a book about citizens' income with Sam Britton for the Financial Times. Um, he's always been interested in the idea of unconditionality and what it can do for 
people's incentives, people's wealth and their income and so on. And so um, single-tier state pension, when you get it one day, remember it was his baby. Um, it would be nice if that was then turned into a genuine citizen's pension. It's very close to it already. What we're still not sure about is why our, that one particular citizen's income scheme uh, increases the poverty rate amongst elderly people. Um, we suspect that it's, it's a rather complicated question to do with how poverty rates are calculated because they are calculated on the basis of a, a threshold. Obviously, we have to decide who's poor and who isn't, um, which relates to the, um, uh, the median of um, uh, the, the median income of a cohort of a demographic group of some kind. And so if that threshold shifts, then you change the, the level of poverty even if nothing's happened. You, and, and, and what appears to be happening is a leveling out of, of, of the of, of people's retirement incomes um, and a consequential shift in the threshold, which appears to increase the level of poverty. We can't see how, because we don't seem, if you look at the results in detail, we don't seem to be reducing elderly people's incomes. So there's something strange going on. And, we're still looking into it. That, that, that's a sort of answer. I, that's a, um, there are things that we don't quite understand <coughs> about Euromod and the results it generates. But uh, um, I, I, I don't know how much you know about Euromod and, and these micro simulation programs. If you want more detail, you can ask, ask Luke. Um, but what it does is it's a, a computer program um, which has coded into it all of the regulations of the tax and benefit system. It's a very complex piece of software. And you can change the, um, the, the, the regulations within it, um, and uh, you can add new benefits to it. You, know, you can experiment with the system by <coughs> adding additional code to the model. And then through it, you put the whole of the family resource survey data. That's data on incomes and expenditures and all kinds of um, statistics uh, for 56,000 individuals. It's a one in a thousand sample of the country and 26,000 or so households. Um, you put that through it, which means, and it then generates a list of disposable incomes for the entire sample for the current system and a list of disposable incomes for your new system with the citizen's income included and various other changes made. And you can then compare the two, uh, the two lists of disposable incomes to see what happens to all of those households. And you can extract results um, from, from that. Um, and that's what we do. And um, quite what's happening to elderly people, we're not entirely sure at the moment. We'll, we'll hope to do some more at some point. I'd just like to, um, a general question first, um, why the resurgence of, in, of interest? No, I wish we knew. <laughs> well, I mean... I can the, guess. I, I've got yeah, to I guess. Mean, automation, you know, yeah. the dysfunctions of means testing, yeah. um, living standards, stagnancy, mm. crisis, etc. I mean, what, what do you think is driving? I mean, that's important yeah. to think about feasibility, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. just a general, first general question. Mm. And the no, more specific one is, um, 
on um, you know what happens in, in recessions and the automatic stabilizers. Yes. So just explain why uh, a basic income yeah. doesn't interrupt the functioning of automatic stabilizers. Yeah, yeah, okay, so I can do that. Um, why the current interest? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, because many of the debates that people tell me have generated this new interest, they're not new debates. Um, uh, people have been worrying about uh, automation, computerization, and what it will do to the employment market for a long time. Um, now, there's even more interest in it now, and the interest in that issue has, of course, been growing. But um, the, the debate is not particularly new. We've had a dysfunctional benefit system for a very long time, um, ever since 1976 when I was working on it. Um, in fact, it only goes back to, to the, the before Second World War, um, highly dysfunctional system. Um, uh, I suspect that it's, it's a combination of a very large number of factors coming together to generate, the, to <coughs> creating a critical mass that then generates the new interest. And because our information is now global, we are much more aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. Um, when we set up the Basic Income Research Group in 1984, uh, we would sometimes discover that somewhere else in the world, someone else was thinking about some of these things. Um, but we, we didn't know. And, and whereas now, we do know. And uh, so I think that's one of the, the effects as well. Um, a really, I, I actually think a significant event was in this country, I'm talking about just this country at the moment, is Larry Elliott's article in the Guardian in August, 19, uh, in August 2014. Um, one of our trustees, Alex Cobham, um, we were discussing why is there no um, uh, serious stuff in the press about citizen income, it's such an important issue, we thought it was an important issue. Um, and one of our trustees knew Larry Elliott a bit, and so persuaded him to have a meeting with, with him and me. And so the two of us went along. And he told us that he would never write about anything that he didn't regard as a serious, feasible proposition. And so he really wasn't very interested. Um, but we had a discussion for about half an hour, and he said he'd think about it. And he did think about it, and the article resulted. And um, that seemed to have unblocked something. And, um, and ever since then, there have been articles in all sorts of bits of the, of the press. And I, I think it probably, because Larry Elliott, he's, he's one of the most serious economic commentators. Um, and he saw something in citizen income which maybe others haven't. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the factors. But I think there have been an awful lot of factors. Um, it's possible that the work we've been doing over the last 30 years has contributed, um, because there are an awful lot of people who've received our newsletters and reports and stuff over those years. Even more significant, though, um, is the Indian pilot project, the Indian pilot project, the Swiss referendum, debates generated in Finland and in Utrecht, particularly in Finland. And one of the, the really important factors, I think, is the uh, significant misinformation about the Finland project early on. Um, I was rung up by a number of journalists saying, Finland is going to implement a citizen's income. Will you tell us about it? Now, I knew perfectly well that Finland wasn't intending to implement a citizen's income. They didn't even know if they were going to have a pilot project. But somebody had put this message out. 
and it had spun out of control. And so everyone was interested suddenly. And so we got articles in the press, and I was invited to put together a Money Box Live program, and it was all, you know, really rather interesting. Um, and, uh, and Neil Lawson of Compass and one of our trustees ended up on Newsnight. And, and so the debate got a, a big kick through some significant misinformation about something that had never happened. I mean, one of the, the last chapter of the feasibility of citizens' income um, largely rubbishes all the previous chapters. Um, it was a really interesting piece of research writing this. Because as you look back across significant policy changes in this country, you can see how important policy accidents have been. That is, so much doesn't actually follow the rules and move its way slowly through the feasibility test and then through the policy process into implementation. So much actually doesn't do that if you actually look at it. And vast numbers of accidents have occurred. And some things that are entirely sensible and really ought to happen never happened at all. Um, so, uh, and I think this has been something that's happened to this debate um, through that misinformation, that was an accident. I don't know where that information came from. Um, but, but no, I'm not suggesting it was for one minute. <laughs> but there it all was. I mean, you know about it. It, it just generated all that interest. Yeah. Um, now, stabilizing effect. Um, of course, if you, if you have a means test benefit system, then more gets paid out during uh, a recession, which puts demand into the economy and helps to ameliorate the effects of the, the depression. If you have a citizen's income um, and you keep your means tested benefits, then obviously some of that still happens. Um, let's suppose you have a citizen, just to take, just as a thought experiment, let's abolish means tested benefits, just have a citizen's income. Um, what then happens, of course, during a recession is that a, um, a large amount of, uh, an awful lot of people are losing their jobs and earnings are falling in general. And so there is less tax revenue. And so the, the uh, additional money going into the economy from the citizen's income then becomes a stabiliser because you are still paying out all of that citizen's income even though you're not collecting in the, the, the same amount of tax revenue. So government, if it's going to keep the citizens' income at the same level, is going to have to <coughs> subsidise it. That's where the money then comes from. And so you still do get the stabilising effect. I mean, what, what people sometimes don't realise is that nobody's talking about extra money here. We're talking about exactly the same amount of money, just done differently. And so when I talk about citizens' income, I'm not ever suggesting that the government is simply going to pay everybody a citizen's income and not get extra revenue in to pay for it. It's the whole of the system that will create a stabilising effect um, and not just one element of it. I hope that sort of answers the, the question. Um, you mentioned that some of the political parties in the UK have started to think about this idea, uh, like the Greens, the SNP and the Lib Dems are considering it. In your opinion, are any of those plans that are currently being considered uh, feasible? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you wouldn't believe it from a recent um, debate that happened in Westminster Hall amongst MPs, um, which I will tell you about. Um, uh, SNP, their conference 
um, voted to um, do some work on no, the, the basic census. They wanted to see a figure of income. Obviously, they can't do anything about it in Scotland at the moment, um, but they would like to see it. If ever there's an independent Scotland, I think it's highly likely we might see one. Um, they would like to see one in the UK as a whole now, so that when, if Scotland did become independent, it would already have one, and the SNP is putting some effort into that. Um, Ronnie Cowan, the MP, has been leading that effort, and he's been basing his own work on our research, um, the, the scheme B that, that you've seen. Um, unfortunately, uh, during a, a Westminster Hall debate, and I, this is, you'll find this on our website, um, our research was, was abused by uh, MPs. And uh, whilst one objects to this, and I wrote to Bonnie Cowan with the details to circulate, but he said he would circulate to everybody who was there. Um, unfortunately, it then becomes part of the public Hansard record, um, the way in which some MPs have put it. In particular, one of the Conservative MPs who was present at the debate uh, said that my paper, which was the previous one to the one that I showed you, uh, said that it would require a basic tax rate of 48% to pay a citizen's income. And now that paper had included, had it within it, three, piece, uh, uh, three different citizen's income schemes, um, one of which was uh, paid, had a citizen's income paid at the minimum income standards calculated by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. That would require a basic tax rate of 48%. The paper was quite clear this was infeasible, but that the scheme that I showed you was entirely feasible. Um, but the MP concerned uh, told the gathered MPs that it would cost, for, that it would cost the tax rate of 48%. Um, there's an awful lot of misinformation about there, about out there, and some of it is purposeful. And that's a serious problem, and I'm not quite sure what we can do about it. Um, so yeah, I mean that's the SNP itself. Is, is highly realistic and rational about what's feasible. Um, the Green Party, too, is, and has become more so over the years. Um, they were seriously damaged over this before the last general election, as you may remember. Um, it is mainly because the, the Green Party is entirely staffed by volunteers who've got no time for anything. And whereas the major political parties have got full-time staff who can brief their leader and their ministers and so on on policy matters, the Green Party relies on small groups of volunteers who give what time they can to it. Um, the, uh, the group preparing their basic income scheme for the manifesto had uh, read some of my material but they admitted they hadn't read the stuff about losses in low-income households. And that's what they got stung on in a, an interview um, because the scheme they put together um, looked very like one of the schemes that we had said would create losses amongst low-income households. Um, and a journalist had realized that they had taken one of our schemes and it was that one. Um, it, that, these are, you either regard all that sort of stuff as a real problem, and oh dear, let's worry about it. It is interesting, probably in another respect, that is, it suggests that the debate is becoming more serious, that we are now thinking seriously about these things, and it's becoming part of the 
political discourse, and therefore is going to get caught up in conflict between and within political parties. Um, as far as we're concerned, as Citizens Income Trust, um, all we're interested in doing is trying to put information out there that might be useful. We are not a campaigning organisation. Um, there's another organisation called Basic Income UK that does the campaigning. That's not us. We work together very closely, and they use our stuff, and uh, their chair is one of our trustees. So, I mean, it's, it's not that we're in any kind of conflict, it's just we're different. Um, the, the Labour Party is particularly interesting at the moment. Um, the Chancellor of the, the, the Shadow Chancellor, John MacDonald, has been, um, he's understood the need for a citizen for a long time. He's one of the few MPs who thinks very long term. Now, um, people sometimes have problems with some of the things he says and some of the things he does, but he is one of the MPs who thinks hard about the future. And he invited Citizens Income Trust to organise one of his People's Parliament events in 2014, and he was a main speaker at our own 2014 conference on Citizens Income. He was slightly surprised that so early in his shadow chancellorship he went public on his... Um, his desire to see some work done on citizens' income in the Labour Party, um, which he did. Um, that's at an LSC over in Leicester. Um, and he's clearly persuaded Jeremy Corbyn that it's something worth looking at. Um, one of the problems uh, that that's generated is that it, the issue seems to have become part of the conflict within the Labour Party. And Owen Smith's rubbishing of a citizens' income may have something to do with the fact that Jeremy Corbyn had approved the idea, um, or looked as if he was approving the idea. Um, serious policy issues do get mixed up in that kind of uh, conflict. Um, maybe we shouldn't be surprised about that. Maybe we should actually be pleased about that, because it does mean the issue is being seriously thought about and as, a, as, a, as a policy option. Um, the Conservative Party, there are individual MPs um, who have thought about citizens' income. They're not putting their heads over the parapet. The official position is they're not going to touch it with a barge pole. And what has been said to me unofficially is that we've had such trouble with universal credit, we're not going to touch anything else. Now oh, I can understand their, their point of view. Um, yeah. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, so I'm interested in the politics of basic income, which means, uh, you know, thinking about political coalitions, thinking about political constituencies, right? So not everyone or not every group who might benefit from a basic income necessarily will be part of the same political constituency, right? That, I mean, there's all sorts of cleavages, and we know from a lot of social policy literature that these cleavages are important. In terms, for example, in terms of preferences, different groups have different preferences over different programs, and so on and so forth. I wanted to link that point to something that you said, which is that one of the advantages of a basic income is that it creates social cohesion. I'd be very interested in finding out how that's supposed to work, given that we already have these cleavages, given that, at the end of the day, your feasible argument means that we have a small citizen's income ship layer, but on top of that, we still have a lot of programs that divide these groups and so on and so forth. So 
just a little bit more on that, please. Yes. Um, I suppose it's my, my suggestion that it would improve social cohesion relates to those similar social policies that do appear to do so. Um, there are some social policy ideas <coughs> that do actually seem to cross all those, those cleavages. Now, child benefit is one of them. I'd better talk about that because there's, there's a certain amount of mythology about what's happened to it. Um, at the Conservative Party conference in 2010, the Chancellor and Prime Minister said they were going to means test child benefit for the um, for high rate taxpayers. Um, this was clearly a popular idea. Uh, some of us are quite convinced they cooked it up over a cup of tea between themselves without asking any of their civil servants because you can't do it. Um, there is no database that connects uh, child benefit recipients to high rate taxpayers in the same household. And I'm quite sure that immediately after the conference, their civil servants explained to them um, that in order to create such connections, they would need to examine the intimate relationships uh, between high-rate taxpayers and recipients of child benefit. So they'd be doing to the rich what's now done to the poor in relation to means-tested benefit. And remember, most of these rich people are going to be conservative voters. So uh, they clearly had a problem after that because the promise had been made but a simple means testing on the basis of having higher rate taxpayers in the same household as um, child benefit recipients uh, was not going to work. The result was the additional tax charge that you'll now find at the end of your, uh, the question you now find at the end of your tax return, which says to you, um, please declare if you are in a household which is getting child benefit. And then if you are a higher rate taxpayer, you'll get charged an extra tax on the basis of the child benefit your household is receiving. A really unfortunate result of that, and I've known many people in this position, is the uh, domestic disharmony that it's created, particularly in households where, um, it, it, this is a largely gender thing, um, where the male is a high rate taxpayer, the, uh, and the children belong to his partner, and they're not his children, and she's receiving child benefit. Why should I be paying all this extra tax? You're getting this child benefit, and they're not my children. What's going on? And so women have been withdrawing their child benefit paying just to reduce that hassle. And that's a really sad outcome of, of that policy change. Um, and it means that child benefit is still, in principle, universal and unconditional. Child benefit has not actually changed. Uh, there is an additional tax charge and too far too many people are withdrawing their child benefit claims. It's a shame because it has damaged child benefit function uh, in relation to social cohesion. Um, it was one of the few things that we all share. Every family with children um, got child benefit. And uh, that was something that bound us together as a, as a community. The NHS does the same. Um, in, I, I, there is still private medicine. Um, and people have different views about that. Um, but if, if however rich you are, however poor you are, you get knocked over by a car, you'll get taken to A&D. Um, it's something that keeps us... Now, we, the problem is we don't realise that certain in policy instruments create social cohesion until we lose them. And you realise something's gone. 
And uh, it's very difficult to evaluate what creates social cohesion and what doesn't. And all you can do is look at their characteristics, like national health service, lifestyle benefit, life of winter fuel allowance. And, um, and I'm really sorry that there's so much comment sometimes, even apparently, apparently intelligent people saying, please take my, will, my, my, um, uh, my winter fuel allowance away from me because I don't need it. Well, actually, one of the things they might be saying is, I don't want to be lumped in with all of them. Um, they're getting it, it's the poor people. I don't want it, I'm not poor. Um, it's important we keep these things as a statement that, that we actually do belong together. And the citizen's income, I think, would create the same. So how do you evaluate social cohesion? I have no idea. Um, it's, a, it's a very broad brush kind of concept. I'm aware of that. Um, but yeah, there you are. That's the, I think it's the only answer one can give, really. Does that help? Well, I disagree with Yeah, I can understand your disagreement. Um, but, but, but in practical terms, you know, I, I hear people talk about child benefit. and and the NHS and, you know, how valuable this thing is. And, um, and I, to, to relatively poor communities, it really matters that this thing belongs to everybody. Um, it's not just for the poor, it's for everyone. And that, that, that really matters to poorer communities. I'm, you know, I became very aware of that, particularly in South London. Um, who, who else was there? Now that's a really interesting question. Um, we've got a working party on it at the moment. Uh, the question is, well, uh, one of the things we, we, we have said in the past, and I don't think it is now adequate, um, is that who is a citizen is not our business. If government decides who a citizen is, then they get the citizen's income. That is not our problem. Um, I don't think that's adequate anymore because um, I think anybody who is discussing a social policy that is for citizens um, has to at least study the concept of citizenship and say what we mean by it, which is why we're now doing some work on it. Um, if you're interested in the subject, there's an entire chapter on it in Money for Everyone. Um, citizenship itself is a complex concept, of course, because it's not simply about, you know, do you get the vote, do you have a passport of a particular kind, it's, it has, uh, it's, there are different kinds of citizenship, there's economic citizenship, there's the kind of involvement you have in society as a whole, that's the, uh, there's a kind of graduated citizenship, if you like, um, and, and Marshall's concept of a variety of different kinds of citizenship that all add up uh, to a full definition of citizenship, and all you'll find in here. Um, at the same time, uh, we have layered citizenships. Um, if you ask somebody where they come from, you'll get all kinds of different answers. Um, and whilst officially my citizenship might be British, um, I, I am, until about two years' time, also a European citizen. Um, it's a shame I won't be after that, but no. Um, and uh, we have these layers, and they are all important. So citizenship is not a simple concept. What people usually mean when they ask me that kind of question is who's going to get a citizen's income and who's not? And there are some really interesting questions related to that, and you can focus those questions by looking at particular categories of people. And one of the things we're, we're doing in this study group is doing precisely that. 
not just asking about the concept of citizenship, but about the particular group over which questions might arise. Um, uh, asylum seekers is an obvious question. Prisoners is another really interesting one. Um, and there's been a lot of hassle recently over whether they should have the vote or not. And exactly the same questions arise in relation to prisoners and their citizens' incomes. Um, if they are citizens still, then should they still get it? Um, and uh, it's a complicated issue. And all I can say is that if ever we implemented a citizen's income, the government that implemented it would need to take a view on who was going to receive it. Um, these will be political decisions. So for us to think about it beforehand might be a bad idea. Does that help? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, all I can say is complicated. Yeah, who was next? Um, <coughs> Thank you. Um, I've got two questions, and as we're getting towards the end, maybe you can choose one of them, um, whichever one you um, prefer. <laughs> one I like. And, um, <laughs> uh, and they're both about sort of implementa implementability. Yeah. Um, so firstly, has, has research been done in this country or elsewhere about um, the words and sort of in focus groups about which words resonate differently with different groups of people? Yeah. Um, because we all know that matters. Um, second question, a very different kind, um, the sort of business case for citizenship I uh, income uh, and this idea of you know, potentially regional competition, that if it was introduced in some subunit of the European Union, it might have business uh, or economic advantages to that region mm -hmm. in terms of um, uh, cost and solidarity and attractiveness and flexi-security of the labor market. So um, again, any thoughts or evidence on that, particularly in the light of the, the emphasis you put on the fact that it was four municipalities in, in the Netherlands that were doing it together rather than just one? Um, terminology is, yes. Um, at the moment, the terminology is simply an internal debate amongst those who are interested in the idea. Of course, that is how things always start. Um, and so uh, basic income was early on the, the, the accepted term. The problem with basic income in this country, and only in this country, has always been that in English English, the word basic has derogatory undertones to it. Um, my friends would call the, the not very good stuff basic. You know, it's kind of well, it's true, isn't it? If, if something's basic, then it may not be very good. Um, and we sometimes call something basic, meaning it's actually not very good. That's not true of American English. It's not true of the other Germanic languages, where basic does mean foundational, where the word basic income actually means just that, not something that's not very good. Um, during the, the early 1990s, the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust took an interest in our work and, and persuaded the trustees to move towards using the term citizen's income because they were interested in citizenship and they thought, and, and our trustees also thought, that it was a more positive word. Um, and so in this country, we've got two strands of terminology running together, basic income, citizen's income, sometimes universal is added on the end of basic income. And the new Scottish network we set up, because Scotland's now having its own debate about the welfare state, not just the UK one, um, they've chosen citizens' basic income. And um, I, my most recent book, was, which was published by Darton, Longman and Todd, to be used in the Christian churches, Citizens' Basic Income and Christian Social Policy, the, the publisher asked for citizens' basic income, which I thought was really interesting. Um, 
And we now have some younger trustees on board who say the only issue is none of that. Forget all of that debate. All that matters is search engines. Um, and if you want to have all of your work found by anybody looking for anything, you've now got to use systems-based income because then all the search engines will find you. Um, so our trustees are going to be looking at that tomorrow afternoon. Um, and we'll be persuaded perhaps by those, those the, the, the young Turks who know all about search engines. Um, I should go along with whatever they decide. Um, what will play in a, an open, more open public debate is a really interesting question. And if you look at what politicians use when they, when they talk about it, they're using all of that. Sometimes they'll call it citizens' income, sometimes universal basic income, sometimes basic income. Um, I, I don't know. Language evolves, and actually we have little control over it. And um, I'd be interested to see where all that goes. In the end, politicians will choose what they think will play with the general public. So I think we just need to watch what goes on. Um, there's probably no point in me or anyone else trying to define where that's, that's going to go. And the business case is interesting. Um, I, um, uh, we, don't, we, we don't know what will happen or a region or, or whatever implements the citizens' income in relation to other places. And I'd be really interested to see what happens. My hunch is that whoever does it first, like a lot of sort of people who take on an idea for the first time, and they're the first ones to do it, um, will, will reap the benefits of that in terms of their own economy, their own society, and then other people will follow. Um, I suspect also what will happen fairly quickly is that let's suppose one European country decides to implement a citizen's income, then there would have to be a reciprocal arrangement with other European countries. And, and those other countries that had a citizen's income would then pay the citizen's income to, to the citizens of both of those countries. Um, and so you'd probably see a fairly rapid expansion of citizen's incomes being paid just because one the one would generate others. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. About the uh, use of the refundable tax credit as one way to sort of make it more palatable for some people. It doesn't mean anything to most people. But I think it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in Spain a few years ago with 800 different people um, 400 of them were given a choice between going more universal, going more selective mm. and the framing of exactly the same model was as a refundable tax credit in the other one it was as a basic income slash demograph mm. and we actually see differences mm. and we see differences that favour the tax model the tax integrated model yeah, but so, was, it, was it a different thing that was being discussed? No, that's precisely the point. We were extremely, extremely careful yeah, no, that, that the vignettes the, was exactly yeah, the, the same yeah, thing. One of the interesting questions is, is whether you lie about it. I, Sorry, I what? Whether you lie about it. And this is a really interesting question. Now, take the, take the entire history of benefits in the UK. I think this is important. Um, national insurance has never been insurance. It doesn't fit the insurance model at all. Um, 
supplementary benefit, which I used to administer, was never supplementary to anything. Universal credit isn't universal in digital credit. Um, and yet, you look all the way across, um, governments name things in relation to how they think they'll be acceptable. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if ever a government uh, implemented a citizen's income, they might call it something completely different, something that we've never thought of, which had absolutely nothing to do with what it really was, um, because they regard that as the way to get it accepted. Um, I, I, language is a fascinating thing, and particularly the naming of benefits. And I, um, I, I look, look at the, the, the government, the, the pensioners get a pension credit um, if they don't have enough to live on. They then get a savings credit um, to try and patch up the problem that occurs um, because the savings damage the level of the, the pension credit. And the idea of a savings credit, um, you wouldn't actually necessarily connect that with a means-tested benefit that they were going to get because they had some savings. Um, governments choose words for things because they may make it acceptable. Working tax credits are not tax credits. And, you know, the, but <laughs> no, but they're, they're not tax credits. Um, but they call them tax credits to make them sound good. Um, to try and separate that idea from the means-tested benefits that people out of work were getting. Um, job seekers' allowance was what used to be called, more honestly, unemployment benefit. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, that's there. Uh, that's quite all right. What time are you finishing? Well, it's an interesting question. Okay, we'll just take them all. No, it's okay, I'll duck out. Well, no, you're my, if your question's <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah, we're all right. Uh, well, it's just that I'm, I'm coming from the labor market, and the labor market issue that you've raised is going to get much worse. Mm -hmm. In other words, there will be many people now that, as a result of various forms of algorithm automation, including graduates, who are not going to get jobs in the way they think they are. Yeah. So I understand the politics of doing this in the way that you've done it, but at some stage we're going to have to increase the citizen's wage or the citizen's basic wage. But, and that in itself will be a major political struggle. Mm. Otherwise, the problem we're going to have is that people will see it as something which is really for those who are on their uppers. Um, so can you see the politics of this oh, yeah, unraveling? Yeah, no, and yeah. I'm very keen that that doesn't happen. So my question is, yeah. how do you then sustain a citizen's wage where people actually can live? Yes, I think that's a really important question. And I mean, all I can say to that is that the best way to get to um, something close to a citizen's income, which we may well need in the future, um, is to start with one that isn't, because I can't see any other way of starting. Um, there's no way we're ever going to get a large one paid straight away, because that's never going to be feasible on, on almost any of the feasibility tests. And so if we're ever going to get to something that's, that we're going to need in the future, we've got to start small and start soon. Um, 
an important question is, is then how you implement it. And one of the, the options which the Institute of Chartered Accountants is going to be looking at is picking off individual demographic groups simply in relation to age. Um, and the, the most likely scenario that's going to, that might pass the psychological test is to choose those groups which we regard as deserving. Now, we may not like the deserving-undeserving uh, distinction, but it is in the public mind. And so politicians take a great deal of notice of it. Um, and the one group that's undeserving is working-age adults. So that's going to have to be left to last. Um, one quite deserving group at the moment is the pre-retired, who are having real trouble with their employment market, with their incomes, especially as the state pension aid rises. There are an awful lot of people who would do well with, with part-time employment, with gaps in employment, and so on, um, that might keep them in the employment market. And so that's an obvious group to start with, with a, a citizen's income. Not necessarily calling it that, calling it a pre-retirement income. It's the kind of thing that might play well. Similarly, young adults, their income strategies are in a real mess. It's just complete chaos. And for government to sort that out with a, a young people's income or education income, call it what you like, um, would, would be quite popular with an awful lot of parents. And so I, I can see that as being another, the next deserving group. Um, sorting out the single tier state pension, turning it into citizens' pensions is an obvious one to do. Similarly, enhancing child benefits would be really popular. Um, so those, those different groups could easily, you know, more easily pass the psychological feasibility test, which, and if you ever manage to achieve that, and I've no idea whether anybody ever will, um, then an awful lot of people in the working age, adult age group would know people with citizens' incomes by then and would realise the benefits of it. So I, it wouldn't then be too difficult to fill the gap. There's one possible implementation method that the Institute of Chartered Accountants wants to have a look at. Um, and I, I think it may well be the one that has the most going for it. Who knows? And, uh, but one, you've, got to make, you've got to have one before you can increase it. And I, I, I agree with you. We're going to need something very different from what we've got at the moment. Um, and I, I, know, I think this is the only way to go. Yeah, mine's fairly simple. Um, it's just trying to get a better idea of the numbers behind it, and maybe other people have done like the maths already from your scenario B, but um, just wondering what the annual income figure would be for an individual in that scenario B, and then also um, what you would have, <coughs> say, would be like the optimal annual figure based on <coughs> what considerations you would put behind that. Um, sorry. Um, so would you put... Um, you know, incentives to work um, as one of the primary considerations behind your optimal number, or would you look more at, you know, the percentage point reductions in poverty that you can get? Yeah, well, and 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 yes, the, the answer is... Um, and just one, one more part was um, how it would increase on an annual basis, whether you'd just do it in line with inflation, or I'm presuming you wouldn't have, like, a double lot. Uh, the, the scheme that you saw um, is £3,000 a year for um, working-age adults. Um, and 
I mean, that may not sound a lot, but for a, a family with two adults and some children with an enhanced child benefit, that adds up to quite a lot of foundational income, and it's a very good basis on which to build. Um, of course, you'd have to build on it, and, and everybody would have to find a way to build on it. Either would lead to benefits or more earnings. Um, yes, it would be nice to see that rise. Now, the question is, is how you evaluate that. I suspect it, it will always be a chaotic political decision. And we've seen um, that kind of political chaos over the idea of a national minimum wage, a, the living wage campaign, which has now had the rug pulled out from under it by the national living wage and so on. The political pressures will always push things around, and we need to be aware of that. But if you want a rational approach to incentives, then you have to look at it this way, although it's a fairly blunt way of looking at it. If you're a very small citizen's income, then it will decrease people's marginal deduction rates, providing a greater incentive. So incentives start to rise. At the other end of the scale, a very large citizen's income would reduce incentives to employment because you wouldn't need to be employed. So at that end of the scale, the incentives are falling. Somewhere in the middle here is a plateau. Now that plateau will be at a different point for different households, which is complex. Um, but ideally, on that plateau that you want to be and the, and the citizen's income that provides that plateau is going to be the best for incentives. Now, of course, policy doesn't work in that kind of rational way and I, I think we're more likely to see a certain amount of chaos. Um, I have no idea. I, have no, I actually have no idea. And I think it would be an empirical issue. You'd have to wait and see what happens. Um, because I... There, there are models of the labour market, um, but um, you don't have to read very much on them. Tony Atkinson's produced some of the work on this over many years um, to realise just, just how difficult it is to model labour market behaviour in any kind of reliable mathematical way. Um, there are so many different causalities, so many different pressures on employment market experience that accurate prediction is almost impossible. You can talk about general trends and how doing something is likely to make this change, um, but until you actually do it, you're not sure actually what effect you're going to have. And so it would have to be an empirical issue. Yeah. Hello. Um, I'm wondering um, when they were talking about the Swiss um, um, possibility of introducing the amount of money, one of the big arguments for the No campaign was that anyone from other EU states can come into the country and claim um, the citizens' yeah. benefit, even um, those citizens isn't in the EU. So um, um, that could also have other knock-on effects, possibly in, in terms of uh, more increased unemployment amongst the native population. So are these sorts of, how are these issues being thought of? Yes, I quite agree. I mean, it, it was one of the arguments that was put, as well as the argument that it will cost too much because such a large figure had been suggested and so on. And, and when you add all that up together, that's why you get the no result. Um, Switzerland is in the European economic area, and um, yes, it's a, so you have freedom of movement of labour between Switzerland and, and other European countries, even though it's not in the EU. It is a complex issue, and all one can say is that at the moment, within the EU, um, that's not benefits remain a national competence and so it wasn't necessarily a valid point take this country and our child benefit rules um, in this country 
if you're from a country with a very similar child benefit and there's a reciprocal agreement, then you get the child benefit when you arrive here. Uh, otherwise, there's a waiting period, and then you do get child benefit. Um, and there's no reason why you shouldn't have a similar policy related to benefits, because each European nation still has control over its own tax and benefits policy. Um, now, there is a general rule that, that if you move to another country, then you get what happens in that country, which is what all the hassle is about in relation to people from other countries coming here to work and getting our benefits. They do. Um, but it's still possible to create waiting periods, and there's no reason why not. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a complex issue when you're... The, the, the politics would have to be sorted out. I entirely agree. Um, but, the, but it's not a new issue. That's what I'm saying. This is not a new issue. This, this, this applies already. Now, but if said, for example, though, I mean, that was obviously quite a large sum, so that might have been perhaps... Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, a, it was a crazily ridiculous sum that mm. was being proposed by the, the proposers of the referendum question. So it was not actually on the referendum paper. Um, so it's a very complex issue, that one. And, uh, they really ought not to have suggested a high 